This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 71. You ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey everyone, today on the call I have with me David Zook. The reason he's on the call is because he owns about 3,000 multifamily units and he's raised over $50 million. I met him on the Real Estate Guys cruise back in April. Real good guy, really down to earth, but man, he's so achieved and he loves sharing his experience with others. So we've had some back and forth scheduling wise. We finally got it going and I'm really, really excited about this. He's he's just an entrepreneur, kind of like me through and through, but you know, I want to be like David when I grow up and he's got a really, really cool story. A little bit different than a lot of people as we always are, but so many life lessons, so many business lessons in there. So if you're a high net worth individual, you're making a lot of money, you have a lot of money, you have a particular set of problems normally related to how many taxes you pay or your inability to get yield from your portfolio or your ability to grow long-term wealth, right? So if that's you, you want to pay attention because that was David's situation a little while back. And it's a good problem to have, but nevertheless, these are the white-collar problems that we sometimes have to deal with. So David's going to help you make better investment decisions. Now, if you're a syndicator, then you should also pay attention because now you know what high net worth individuals are looking for, like what keeps them up at night, right? And it's not obviously maybe not cash flow, but it's other things like tax burden, that kind of stuff, right? So understanding what they're looking for so that when you talk to the high net worth individuals, you can talk to them in a way that actually that is interesting to them. So really pay attention to that because it's going to make you better at raising money. So Dave's going to talk about how he legally reduced a massive tax bill of $475,000 to nearly zero and why he thinks it's actually patriotic to not pay taxes and how he lost $200,000 by partnering with a syndicator and what he learned from it so you don't make the same mistake. If you're a passive investor, what to pay attention to when you're thinking about investing with a syndicator and his major aha moment when he finally ran out of his own cash to invest. So really excited. Let's get right into the interview with David Zuck. Hey, David, welcome to the show today. Hey, Michael, thanks for having me on your show. Well, yeah, I'm really excited about to talk to you more and get to know you a little more because you have done so many things in business and multifamily specifically. You've reached such a massive scale of what you've done. So, hey, you know, I, I want to be like you when I grow up, Dave. So why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a serial entrepreneur and investor. I've been an investor from my early teens and I really got into the real estate business. I, I sort of got chased into the real estate business. I had a tax problem. So early in my childhood, I remember watching my dad do real estate and he self-managed some of his real estate. And I just decided, you know, that wasn't going to be for me. I got into the business world and started a couple businesses, bought a couple businesses, got them to the point to where they were really profitable and started having a tax problem. So I got chased into the multifamily space, realized that there was a whole lot more benefit to the multifamily space than just tax. There's, you know, cash flow and amortization and appreciation and and I'm enjoying all those today, but I really got into it because of the tax issues that I had. That's interesting. Now why did you get started with businesses so early on your in your life? What kind of environment were you in? Why did that happen? My dad was a successful entrepreneur and he had still has a successful business that I was actually able to 
become a partner in. So that's one of my businesses. But no, we had a very entrepreneurial family. And I mean, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. That's awesome. Yeah, because I didn't grow up like that at all. I was surrounded by non-entrepreneurs. So I was in my mid-30s before I kind of stepped out. So I'm always fascinated by that. And that's what I try to do with my kids is surround them with at least the option of being an entrepreneur. I didn't even have that option. I didn't even know it existed. So the fact that you grew up around entrepreneurs, that's fantastic. I think it's great. You know, I wish I was exposed to it early on. You, know, you said you had a tax problem. It seems like you were probably making too much money with your businesses. So what made you start looking into real estate? Well, there's a couple things. One is you never learn more than when you're in absolute pain or when you're experiencing absolute pleasure. And so I had some absolute pain when I realized one April the 13th, I think it was back in 2010 or 11, that I still owed on two days later, I had to come up with $373,000 after I paid my quarterly. So I was paying, you know, four hundred and ninety seven thousand dollars that year, I think it was. And so it got me on this path to study and educate myself. I remember hearing Robert Kiyosaki talking I was going down this path and I was reading books. I was reading Rich Dad Poor Dad and and then everything else he wrote. And I remember hearing him say that you could make millions of dollars a year and, and not pay any tax. And it drove me crazy because I was always taught that if you make a lot of money, you got to pay a lot of tax. And I realized through all my studying and getting around the right people that there was a way that I could make a lot of money and not pay tax. So that's what really took me down that path. And getting around the right people and studying and reading the right content was kind of what pointed me in the right direction. That is fascinating. I've never heard the story that I got into multifamily so I can pay less taxes. I, I love that though, right? It's a great you know white collar problem to have. But I remember here listening to Robert Kiyosaki on the Real Estate Guys cruise, and that's where we met. And his biggest thing is, I don't want to pay the government a daggone dime. And the way I'm doing it is multifamily real estate. So the tax benefits of that are actually not very well understood by a lot of people. Can you maybe talk about why you felt your primary reason was to kind of reduce taxes? We can talk about maybe some of the other aspects of it, but what are some of the tax benefits of multifamily specifically? And I'll just be clear because uh, some people think, and, and it's probably not your listeners because your listeners are entrepreneurs and investors and small business owners, I would imagine. And and so, but you know, the general populace for the most part thinks that it's patriotic to pay your taxes. I would disagree with that. When the government puts out tax incentives, they're telling the people, they're telling us that they want you to engage in a certain activity. So... They're putting out tax incentives saying, hey, we want you to go drill oil. We want you to go buy multifamily real estate. We want you to go you know, install solar. You know, There's all kinds of different ways that you can do what the government wants you to do. And if you do what the government wants you to do, they'll reward you for it and give you tax breaks. Which is patriotic, right? So saying, look, yeah, if I'm yeah. getting, if I'm, this is a very good point. If I'm getting tax credits from the government, that they're there for a reason because the government wants us to do certain things. They want us to invest in housing. They want us to invest in oil exploration, right? So why are we getting tax credits? Well, because the government wants us. So actually, in that context, not paying taxes is actually patriotic. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. Can you talk a little bit more about, so the average person, right, is either, you know, maybe high income earners or uh, doctors, attorneys making a lot of money, paying on tons in taxes, right? Then there's the investor who, of course, wants to keep the majority of the return and not pay taxes on it. And multifamily specifically is a great way to accomplish both. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah. So if you do nothing else, if you don't get creative at all, 
you can buy a multifamily property and write the whole investment off in 27 and a half years. It gives you a little over three and a half percent per year. You can take a paper loss. That doesn't mean that you're actually taking a loss. It's just a paper loss. If you get a little creative and you have a good team around you, you've got good tax people on your team, you can actually do what's called a cost segregation study. And you can accelerate that depreciation to the point where you're getting way more depreciation than your cash flow from that piece of real estate. So it just allows you to do bigger things quicker. And you know, basically what happens is you get to reinvest the capital that you would have otherwise given to the government. That's right. Now, back up a little bit. What is depreciation and why would a normally appreciating asset like multifamily in the IRS's eyes actually depreciate? That makes no sense. Well, if you look at the government programs in housing, it's pretty obvious that the government isn't very good at running profitable enterprises. So what they do is they allow you to take a 3.5% or 3.6% loss per year on that asset. So even though you you may buy a million dollar asset and five years later it's worth two million dollars, you can take losses on that property. So you can actually take losses on the property, legally write write off paper losses on the property while your property is gaining value. Right. So this whole thing of depreciation essentially, let's say you make your income. I think this is the way it works. You have your income from your apartment building and you make $10,000 or whatever per year where you're actually showing a profit. Then there's this thing called depreciation. And it's actually, you're not paying taxes on $10,000. You are actually paying taxes on a lot less or possibly nothing. It's just paper expense, right? So the IRS allows you to put a paper expense in there. It's not actually a real expense. So if that's the case, and I'm putting $10,000 in my pocket, but I may not be paying any taxes on that $10,000. Is that kind of the upshot to me? That is exactly right. In fact, for your listeners, and remind me at the end, and I'll offer this to them, I actually put a K-1 together. It's a real-life K-1 that belongs to one of my investors. I whited out the investor's name for privacy reasons, obviously, but it shows exactly how it works. And I think in that example, it shows like the investor brought in so the cash flow that the investor stuck in his pocket was a couple thousand dollars. The loss from owning that asset, the paper loss came in at a few thousand dollars more than the cash flow. So the investor actually got to stick real cash in his pocket, right. but he got to claim a loss to the government. So that's, I mean, if you guys are listening to that, if you're a high income earner and you're trying to figure a way to, to earn less, right? Multifamily is one way to do that. If you as an entrepreneur want to keep all or most of the income from any business you own, multifamily is the way to go, obviously. Now, you talked about this cost segregation. So go back to the cost segregation just because I don't want to gloss over it. What does cost segregation do and why would you want to do it? What cost segregation is, and, and there's specific rules around this, if you own a big multifamily building, the IRS is going to want you to get a licensed professional to come in there and, and do the work for you. And what that licensed professional will do, he'll walk every room in the property, he'll walk around the property, and he'll write up a big, heavy report on this property. And so what he's doing, he's justifying the fact that you're going to take the depreciation over five to seven years instead of 27 and a half years. Most replaceable or most depreciating pieces of that's a part of that property, like say washers and dryers, your flooring, your paint, your electric, your plumbing, your sidewalks, your roofs, your pavement, they all have different depreciable life cycles. 
So what he does he, is he breaks out those components, and on average, you get to write off about 70% of your physical asset in five to seven years instead of taking it out to the 27 and a half years. Right. So most people, without doing this stuff, the entire building is appreciated over 27 years, right? Just by default. Yep. If you go through the trouble of a cost segregation analysis, it basically the engineer breaks the building into its constituent parts, and it yep. depreciates each different class in a different way. And then averages out the depreciation, which comes out to five to seven years, which is staggering, right? Most people, let's say you own the asset for five to seven years, there's a good chance you're not paying taxes at all while you are putting money in your pocket. Is that oh, essentially yeah. what it means? It's amazing. That's, that is exactly right. You started to get into multifamily primarily because of a tax shelter, but how did you get started with it? How did you go out doing that? What did you end up doing to start? I stumbled around and made mistakes. I hooked up with the wrong guy the first time around and and lost a couple hundred thousand dollars. I was extremely fortunate and I got introduced to a really good team. I ended up doing a deal with them and it really worked out. I just kept doing business with them and we ended up doing a lot of deals together. So it was about finding the right people and just taking advantage of the opportunity that was right in front of us. Let's talk a little bit about, to the degree you're comfortable, the first partner you had. What was a, Why did you partner with someone and maybe what went wrong? I was really interested in learning more. This guy was a syndicator mm-hmm. and I was the passive investor. So I went into the deal thinking that I could really learn a lot from him. Ends up, I did learn a lot, but it wasn't exactly what I was expecting to learn. <laughs> uh, so it was, you know, it was a painful experience, but it was it was one that served me well and taught me some really good lessons. What lessons did you learn from that? Team up with the right people. Team, so, team, team up with the right people. Team up with competent people and know what they're doing. Have a long track record of success, but most important, just find a really good team and do business with them. Right. So this particular syndicator apparently was not one of in the classification of a good team. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Any advice for a past investor kind of evaluating a syndicator to invest with? What should they be careful of or look out for? Well, there's a couple of things that I did wrong there. And I, you know, it's pretty clear to me now. Back then I was excited and I was, you know, he convinced me that it was a super good deal to get involved in. And I was actually the only passive investor in the deal. Mm. So I brought $750,000 to the deal. And it was my first deal with him. So that was mistake number one. I would say, do the deal with the guy, watch him perform, let him build up that trust with you and watch him closely. You know, if it turns out that he's doing all the right things and he's making that property perform, stick with him and, and do deals with him over and over and over again. Right, so, yeah, so there, there, start, start smaller. Yeah, That's good. yeah. Mm-hmm. I really actually only do deals with a few teams. I do deals with three or four teams, and then that's it. You know, I'm not saying that I'll never branch outside of that. I like to find people that are really good at what they do, and then just instead of having 10, 15 different people that I do business with, I stick to my core three or four teams that I really like doing business with, and I, I just do business with them over and over again. Yeah, I like that. Now, it sounds like after this experience, you said you were introduced to a team and you ended up doing a lot of deals together. Was that also more of a, a passive active relationship or what was the nature of that partner and why did it work out better? Yeah. So I came into the market with cash looking for an asset to buy 
And my now partner had the opposite problem. He had just bought 800 units of his own in a matter of a couple of years, and he was out of cash, but he had all these opportunities that he was still looking to capitalize on. It was a perfect fit. I came to the market with the cash. I had a need. I needed assets. He had a bunch of assets. He didn't have any cash anymore. So we were able to just team up and do a deal together. At, you know, On the first couple of deals we did, it was just me. So we did a deal together, and then we did another deal together, and then I got my family involved. After buying a couple hundred units myself with him, he came in like today. He'll come in as a 12.5% partner and do a deal with us. And after I sort of ran out of my own cash, I invited my family to participate, join us, and, and then we did a couple more deals together and got to the point where we either had to slow down or we were sort of out of cash. We had to slow down or we had to team up with folks. And I was invited to sit on the board of a local startup bank. And I was sitting around the table with a bunch of the guys and I knew most of the guys at the table and I knew they could stroke the seven-figure checks. And they were debating if they should invest in this bank. And I remember hearing a couple of them talking and saying, well, you know, it'll take five or seven years till we get any return at all, but it's better than having our money in a CD. I just remember thinking, oh, this is crazy. The CD is paying less than half percent at the time. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me. And I was like, uh, you know, there's got to be a way we can connect these people with what we're doing. We're over here making double digits and they're over here basing their investment decision on a half a point. So it was kind of a defining moment for me at that time. What was that aha light bulb that went off for you at that meeting? Well, I didn't realize that very successful businessmen like that had that problem. You know, they're basing their investment decision on a half a percent interest in a bank CD. And I couldn't believe it. And here we were over on the multifamily side, you know, making double digit returns. And, you know, I just like, somebody's going to help these guys. And I'm over here on the other side, got the exact opposite problem where we've got deals and we're out of cash. So I was able to kind of bridge that gap. And once I figured out that we can actually partner with these guys and do business, that's where I got into the syndication business. I, I really didn't get into the multifamily business to syndicate. I did it because I had a need. Turns out a lot of other people have that same need. So when you first started out, it was more of a passive thing. So you invested with a guy, it didn't work out so well. Then you went and found another partner. How active were you? Were you the typical passive investor or did you have a more active role? As far as day-to-day -day activities, I was passive. But I was also in there looking to learn as much as I could. We do a lot of business in Memphis. It's not the only place we own multifamilies, but that's by far the uh, largest percentage of our holdings are in Memphis, Tennessee. So I'll just give you an example. Today, we have the best broker in the city on our team. So him and his three-man team are involved in almost half the transactions and multifamily in the entire city. So he'll find a deal and he'll bring it to my partner who lives in Memphis. His whole team is in Memphis. And then my partner and his team will go out and do all the due diligence. Once we have the building under contract, then I'll go out to my investors and I'll fund the deal. And once I fund the deal and we go to closing, then I rule it over to my partner's plate. He's got to manage it. He's also a management company. He doesn't do any third-party management, but he manages all of our stuff. Interesting. So you said you're largely passive, but you wanted to learn as much as you could. What advice do you have for passive investors? How much should they learn or how much should they be involved with a syndicator that they're investing with? Well, once you get to the point where you trust and you know you're with a competent 
syndicator and, and you feel comfortable. I mean, one of the reasons you want to invest in a syndication anyway is because you don't want to deal with the daily headaches of running a deal and you don't want to be super active. So it's up to each investor. And the thing is, I was here 10 years ago. I was in a position where I was running my businesses. My businesses were scaling. I didn't have time to run around and look for deals in real estate. So I would have gladly given my money to somebody like me to go invest for them. So it really depends on where each investor is at. If they have a business that's growing and their main focus is on that business, keep it that way. Keep it that right. way. And, but it's going to be super important that they're with a good syndicator that they can trust and believe in. So it sounds like you should know a little bit something about the investment, but it's more important to actually trust the syndicator is what I'm hearing from you. The team is the most important piece. The team is more important than the asset, yeah. That's the syndicator team, the property manager, all that. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Now, so you start off basically becoming a passive investor, and it's interesting, and all of a sudden, so you had a certain amount of, of money, then you ran out, and you're like, oh, crap, now what do I do with all these deals? It would be a shame. And you met these guys on the bank board, you're like, these guys are fighting over 5 or 6% return. That's ridiculous. You're like, you know what? I can probably connect these guys with double-digit return and still doing deals. So, so you started to raise money, right? That's essentially what you did. Once you had that aha moment, how did you go about raising money? It was a lot different then than it is now. I mean, I remember going out to their workplaces. I remember going out. I mean, I live in Amish country out here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I remember going into the cow stables to the Amish farmers and telling them about what I was doing and showing them the plan and showing them the deal. My very first deal that I syndicated in a multifamily space, I needed to raise 850000 I got uh, cow manure on my shoes. I was out there, you know, meeting with people. It's a lot different today. Today, I, you know, for the most part today, I send out an email and, and it gets funded within a couple hours. Back then, I went out to see the people that I knew had the need. I knew had money. They had tax problems. and I'd listen to their stories and I got to really be able to, over time, kind of get that story out of them and, you know, try to meet the need of the business owner. And so how does this conversation go? I mean, obviously, let's say there's an acquaintance, someone you know, or maybe even got a referral to them. How did that initial conversation go with that person? Because you don't sit there, hey, I'm raising $850,000. Are you in? They're going to go, no, what the heck are you talking about? Right? So how did that, how did that conversation start and then progress from there? It was a challenge at first. It was a challenge for me psychologically because I was never known in the community as the real estate guy. I was known as the business guy. So... To me, there was kind of a psychological barrier there that I had to get over. But what really helped me in the beginning was I had been doing it for myself on my own account for a while. So I was able to point back and kind of point at some success I was having. And, you know, it wasn't something I was going to take their money and go out and try to do. I already had some success in that space. I had a good team set up around me. Part of it was being able to tell the story really good. But, you know, it was about going out finding some pain in somebody's life. Maybe they had pain like I did. Maybe they had a tax problem. Maybe they wanted to build extra streams of income. And the funny thing is, a lot of really super successful business people, they are really good at building their business and have done it for you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And they're sitting on a pile of cash and not really knowing. You know, they're at the point in their business maybe where it's kind of plateaued. They don't need to dump in a lot more cash to keep it growing. So to be able to go to them and give them an option that they otherwise wouldn't have had that option, and their you know their second best option was invest in a CD for less than one percent. 
Right. Is it safe to say, did you target a certain kind of person when you went out raising money? Did you target successful business people? Did you talk to everybody? Did you only talk to certain people? Who did you kind of target? I've lived in this community all my life. So you get to know who the the successful people are in the community. And I sort of had my short list of guys that I went out and talked to at first. Yeah. So when you broach that subject first, uh, you start talking about real estate. Did you uncover those same pain points or what did you get uh, in return? The first two were the hardest that I've ever done, but it, you know, it wasn't super hard. It was once you had the story down and it also helped that people knew me and who I was and trusted me in the business space. So it was, it was relatively easy. It did have, you know, I had some challenges, but like anyone will starting out in a new venture, but it was relatively easy based on the relationships I had in the community and, and all that. But as far as the story, I mean, that's still what I do today. As a successful syndicator going out and asking people for money, it's not about me. It's about them. It's about them and their need. Once you can find what their need is and match it up to something that you may be offering, that's really what you want to do. You don't want to have your deal and try to shove your deal down their throat. They have a need. If you have an answer or can help solve their problem or their need, that's really what you want to do as a syndicator. What kind of returns do your investors look for? So when you structure a deal, you know, you would talk in terms of cash and cash return, average annual return, return of capital. Now, kind of what are the ranges that you're seeing where your investors kind of nod their head going, yes, I'm very interested in that opportunity? We typically try to get in that somewhere in that 7 to 10% range as far as cash on cash return. The IRR is a lot higher than that. Typically from a cash on cash return, it's in that 75 to 10% range. Do your investors understand the concept of IRR or are you talking about it in terms of maybe average annual return or how do you express that? For the most part, when we're when I talk to them about a deal, it's based on cash on cash return. Like you put $100,000 in this deal, you can expect somewhere between $8,000 and $10,000 per year back. They do understand the capital appreciation part as well. They're concerned about getting a consistent quarterly cash flow check. Interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. If you present a higher cash flow opportunity to them, they'll start nodding, right? If if oh, you yeah. start, my experience has been that the whole idea of IRR, people just kind of glaze over a little bit, as well as any kind of return that may be predicated on a on a successful sale or something like that. People kind of say, yeah, but you know, I'd really like to have that, uh, you know, that monthly or quarterly cash flow. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. The other thing is I try to keep it simple. You start throwing in waterfalls and, you know, if we hit a certain metric, you do this and that, whatever. I mean, you know, it it just kind of muddies the water. We keep it pretty simple and it's easy to understand as people like it. Yeah, that makes a lot of of sense. So so what have you done since then? You started off investing more passively. You kind of learned then you kind of had this light bulb go off and you started saying, hey, I'm going to keep doing this, but I need to get other money. And you started getting other money. So what have you kind of done on the multifamily side? And we'll talk about some of the other stuff you're doing right now. How has that evolved? How's the business evolved for you? What are you kind of doing today? We are doing fewer deals than we were. The multifamily space, as you know, there's a lot of money chasing the space and has been for the last couple of years. And it's been a very popular asset class. And just in the last few years, institutions have been coming in and buying up multifamily real estate. And there's just a lot of money chasing the space. So... We kind of took advantage of the window of opportunity that we had over the last couple of years. The deals that we were able to get back in 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, they're good 
cash flow deals are harder to find today. So we're not aggressively chasing the space right now. I am content to sit and wait. So we're not being super aggressive. We're letting the deals come to us. We want to be in a position where we have the cash and we have the patience. And you know, I'll just give you an example. One of the last deals we bought was a 373-unit building in Memphis, Tennessee. It was called the Villages of Harrison Creek. And that building in 2015 appraised for $9 million. An institution, a group owned that property. They dumped another million dollars into it since 2015. We just bought that building a few months ago for $6 million. So being able to be in the right place at the right time with cash, there's still opportunities out there, but we're not aggressively looking for listings and looking for deals. And, you know, we're not on the loop net and trying to find deals. You know, those deals, those opportunities are gone for the most part. But if you can be patient, if you can have cash and you can be on the sidelines and you can and you're willing to work hard to find those deals, they're still out there. They're just not as easy to find anymore. Yeah, that's the thing is that that's the message is not as easy to find anymore. And I think we've collectively gotten a little bit lazy back, you know, back seven years. It was much easier to find deals. And today people are doing deals. I mean, I see people doing deals, but they're hustling, right? They're not, yeah. they're not just, they're not falling in their, in your lap. So, you know, you're in a position where you deals can come to you. And because you probably have, you're seeing a lot of deals, a lot of people are not in that position and they're just going to have to make it happen. They're going to have to call brokers. They're going to have to send you know, whatever letters. Whatever. They're going to have to hustle to find those deals. People still are doing deals. There's motivated sellers all the time, distressed situations all the time, but they're harder to find these days. So the message really is you're just going to have to hustle. Yeah. The other thing is if you've got a really good team around you and your broker's uh, really good and, and reputable in the area and he can show up strong at the table. We're used to getting a five, eight, ten percent discount on a deal that will be five or eight or ten percent lower than the highest bidder and we'll come away with the deal. So and the reason for that is, you know, he can go in there saying, Hey, these guys closed, you know, fifteen of their last fifteen deals or twenty of their last twenty deals. You know, if they go under contract, they're gonna close this deal. So that's what a seller is looking for. So if you can show up really attractive to a seller, there's a good chance you'll get that deal even though you've got a couple of bidders well ahead of you. Yeah. So what are you really excited about these days, Dave? I love doing business with good people. You know, the asset is almost an afterthought to a certain extent. I mean, I like an asset that produces good heavy cash flow. I like an asset that gives me a lot of tax breaks, tax benefits, but that's behind a really good team. So if I can locate a really good team to business, I'll just give you an example. In in 2012, I was introduced by a really good friend of mine. I was introduced to this team of guys that were heavily involved in the ATM space, cash machines. So I started investing with them passively and I loved it. I loved the team. I loved the asset class. I loved the cash flow and the, and the tax benefits. Got creative with that. I mean, it's, there's just a lot to like about that space. And just within the last year, these guys reached out to me and said, hey, let's take us to a deeper level. Let's get you in as a partner. I actually became a partner with these guys. And I was able to t- start taking ATMs out to my investors Today, well, just in the last probably seven months, we've raised over $9 million for ATMs. And we've got combined, my partner's eye combined, we've got about $50 million worth of machines out in the street. So that's been just a whole lot of fun being able to introduce my investors to kind of a unique, very little known exclusive asset class that not a lot of people know that's even available for investments. It's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, that's awesome. It's interesting that traditionally these investors have invested with multifamily. All of a sudden, you come out of left field with some ATM opportunity, right? And obviously, they kind of ate it up. How can you explain that shift? You know, that's something that I thought long and hard about, and I was not sure how it would be perceived. Because I had established myself in the multifamily space, this is totally different. It's technology, totally different. I just wasn't wasn't sure you know, how it was going to be perceived by my investors. But then when it came out to the end of last year, there was a Section 179 portfolio available. Basically, you could take the asset and, and write it off the first year if you qualified. So I said, you know what? This is good. This is There's no reason that an investor with a tax problem would not like that or go for that. So I rolled it out right at the end of last year. And there was a bunch of people jumped on board. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're on to something. So in January, I opened up another tranche. We blew right through that. In February, we had another one blew right through that. I think it was April or May. I got a hold of the biggest one. Yeah, it was $5 million. So we're working our way through that. Got about a million dollars left in that one. You know, It fit my philosophy. And I had been teaching my investors about cash flow, about depreciation and how it works and all that. So, I mean, they were somewhat primed for it, but uh, it fit my kind of core philosophies of investing for cash flow, you know, even more important than that, investing for tax-free cash flow or tax-advantaged cash flow. So, it just fit. It made a lot of sense for me. So, obviously, there's a lot of other people around with the same problems I have, and it was a good fit. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing your huge experience with us and just insight into raising money and the tax benefits of multifamily and ATMs as well. If people want to reach out to you, Dave, how can they find you? The easiest way is to go to info at therealassetinvestor.com or ATM at therealassetinvestor.com. If your folks want to get access to, I wrote a little piece on the eight real life lessons for syndicators and their investors. And if they reach out to me at info at the real I'll make sure they get a copy of that. And if they're interested and they mention it on the email that they send me, I'd be happy to send out that K1 we talked about earlier, where it shows the exact cash flow that came in from the investment and it shows the depreciation and how it works and how it offset that cash flow and how that doesn't get taxed. So I put that together for my investors and kind of an educational piece and to help them understand, I'd be happy to share it with your listeners. Yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate it, Dave. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. David Zook is such a great guy. I just love his story. I love his enthusiasm for sharing that with others. So I really hope you enjoy that and helps you make you a better real estate entrepreneur. I just also love his aha moment for raising money because when you run out of money and either you don't have any right now or you do and eventually you're going to run out. And if you acquire that skill for raising money, it is just like a major light bulb goes off, which is why I talk about it so much on the show. Speaking of raising money, if you haven't already, make sure you go get my free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. You can get it from themichaelblanc.com forward slash ebook. That's themichaelblanc.com forward slash ebook. You can also get it via text message, guys. It's uh, The way it works is you text the word secret book, all in word secret book to 44222, Two, 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 and you get it that way as well. Also, by the way, I did want to recognize Alina Trigub, if I pronounced that right. She left me a five-star review on iTunes, which I really enjoy 
reading and she says that I, I always ask questions that are relevant and helpful for beginners. And that's really what I want, guys, is I want you to get started with multifamily investing because I know if you do your first deal due to the law of the first deal, once you do that first deal, you will replace your income in three to five years. And that's what the show is all about. So if you love the show, go to iTunes right now and just give me a, a review and I will shout you out next time on the show. So I appreciate that much. All right, you hope you found that useful. And uh, you can always get a hold of me on themichaelblank.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Until the next episode. You know, I talk about that first deal a lot. And it's because it's so important. I know that if I can help you do your first deal, you will be financial free in two to three years. That's what the law of the first deal says. And I observe it over and over and over again, which is why I focus all of my attention on that first deal. If you'd like to experience what it's like to do your first deal, I have a workshop coming up in October and where we basically go through a deal from start to finish all the way from finding it, analyzing it, making offers, getting into contract, doing due diligence. You're going to have to deal with twists and turns in your small group to kind of work through those things. And by the time you're done, it will be as if you've done your first deal yourself. And that's going to be in October. Uh, you can find out more information about that at themichaelblank.com forward slash events. And that will likely become an annual event. So even if you listen to this podcast, if the workshop's already closed or it's past the state, uh, there will likely be another one posted on there. So if you want to do your first deal, that workshop is probably the best way to get you there the fastest. It comes with the online course, The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings. It's included when you sign up for that workshop. In fact, I require you that you complete that before you get to the workshop. Uh, and then we will do that first deal together and your mind will be blown. Your comfort zone will be expanded and you are going to be ready to do the deal yourself. So if you want to experience your first deal, go to themichaelblank.com forward slash summit. Check it out. Let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, I'd love to see you in person and it's going to be in the Washington, D.C. area the first time around and maybe somewhere else, maybe some kind of exotic locale. We'll see. So again, would love to see you in person. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.